Well, this morning, uh, I'm always excited to preach, always excited uh, to have the opportunity to preach God's Word, uh, but today I'm really excited because we begin a brand new series, a series on Romans chapter 8 called Triumphant Living, What the Gospel Can Do for You, and uh, I'm super excited about this series, and so for our scripture reading, Pastor Chris is going to come and he's going to lead us in all 39 verses of Romans chapter 8. Now, due to the length, we're going to uh, let you remain seated. But I do want us to read through the entire chapter, chapter to get a feel for it, to see what Paul's writing here as we begin this series, Triumphant Living. So if you have your Bibles there, turn to Romans chapter 8. Chris is going to come and lead us. You can follow along. If you don't have a Bible, you can... Uh, utilize the pew Bibles on the back of the pew there in front of you, and uh, you can turn there and use the pew Bible. If you're using the pew Bible, it's on page 651. 651. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace, because the carnal mind is enmity against God. For it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together." For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. 
For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. And not only they, but we also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope, for why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, then we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weakness, for we don't know what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings, which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is it? Who is he who condemns? It's Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Father in heaven, we come and we are humbled by the blessings that you have bestowed on us in Christ. We're about to encounter a chapter of the Bible that many of your servants see as the most glorious, wonderful chapter in the entire Bible. It takes us from condemnation to glorification to the promise of never being separated from your work in us. We give you praise. We exalt the name of Jesus. And we ask that you would use our pastor and use the word, your spirit, 
and, and pierce our hearts with the glory of the gospel that we may live triumphantly as more than overcomers in spite of any adversity. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Wow, what a chapter. Thank you, Chris, for reading that for us, taking us through it. And uh, I tell you what, this is, this is well, as Pastor Chris said, it's, it's widely regarded as one of the greatest, if not the greatest chapter in all of God's Word. And as Chris led us through that reading, you maybe began to identify and catch some of the reasons why as Paul was divinely inspired to write these words. And um, as, as Chris even mentioned, one reason this chapter is identified by so many scholars, so many people alike as the greatest chapter in the Bible is because it begins with no condemnation, as we're going to focus on this morning. And it ends with no separation. Those are the bookends. And in between... We talk about glorification. That doesn't mean there's no tribulation. As we will see, there's tribulation. But in that tribulation, there is absolutely no defeat for those who are in Christ. It's a glorious chapter. A wonderful chapter. In fact, you could think of this chapter as kind of the Mount Everest of all the chapters in the Bible. And so I hope for the next few weeks... In fact, for the next 12 weeks, we're going to start today and we will end on Easter Sunday. And so I hope you will join me over the course of these weeks as we hike and as we summit to the top of this chapter. It's a glorious chapter. It's all about triumphant living. It's all about what the gospel can do for you. Now I have to confess I'm a little overwhelmed by this great chapter. It is so big, it's so magnificent, and it's so great. In many ways, what we will see here encapsulates the entirety of the gospel and what it has to say about our Christian walk with the Lord. Romans 8 is the climactic summary of Romans chapters 1 through 7. Basically, it is everything that Paul has been writing about. And now he comes to this chapter and it's kind of like his grand climax of everything. He begins with these arguments that he, he disperses in Romans 1 through 3, 5, 6, and 7. And 4, I forgot 4, chapter 4, how could you forget that? But 1 through 7. And now he ties it all together here in Romans 8. And so what is Paul aiming to accomplish in this great chapter. What's his point? What does he want us to grab hold of here? We'll notice this in your notes or on the screen. The glorious gospel in Romans 8. Paul shows us here what the gospel can do for you. This is a chapter that is focused on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the impact it makes on our life. Not just for salvation, but for all of our Christian life all the way to the end of our glorification. So the question driving Romans 8 is, what can the gospel do for you? And Paul shows us what the gospel can do for you in these 39 verses. In a radio interview last year with Tulian, 
Chavijan, the senior pastor of Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Some of you may know him as the grandson of Billy Graham. He discussed in this radio interview the importance of preaching the gospel to yourself every day. Here's what he said. Often we make the mistake of thinking that the gospel is simply what we believe in order to be saved. We hear it, we believe it, and we are born again. Though we wouldn't say it this way, we often act like that gospel has no further relevance to us. It gets us in the door of heaven, so to speak, but it's not part of our daily life here on earth. Well, in this series, we're going to discover the importance of preaching the gospel to ourselves every day as Paul shows us what the gospel can do for you every day. And so this morning, what I want us to do very simply is to kind of lay the foundation for this series, a foundation that contrasts what we often think about ourselves and what the gospel declares to be true about us. I rarely read the comics in the newspaper. How many are comics fans in the newspaper? All right, some of you. I rarely read the comics, but this one caught my attention. It's from, from a comic strip called Kathy. Not sure if you're familiar with that one, but Kathy appears to be a single woman in her 30s. And in this particular cartoon, she's at home alone with her thoughts. Things I should have done at work, she admits to herself. Things I wish I'd said to Irving. Things I promised myself to never do again, but I did anyway. Ways I made myself miserable that I could have avoided. Her look of depression deepens, and she continues to think. Things I could have done for my family, my puppy, my friends, my coworkers, my neighbor, my finances, my home, my closets, my diet, and millions of people in need whom I've never met. And then in the final frame of the comic strip, Kathy summarizes her plight. Even when I'm not going anywhere, I have 300 pounds of luggage with me. Now it's amazing how close to home a comic strip can strike. Like Kathy, we all generate a depressing list of things undone unsaid or unaccomplished. And even when we're not going anywhere, we can carry hundreds of pounds of luggage. In fact, if we could somehow step on a scale here this morning that measured the weight of our spiritual baggage, some of us would break the machine. So many people today are groaning under the strain of the baggage in their spirits, in their souls. And that weight, that baggage is called guilt. We all have it to some degree, but some of you here are in the super heavyweight division. Guilt holds you down. Guilt holds you back. It's kind of like wearing those ankle bracelets in the 80s. Remember that? You put on those weights on your legs and you'd walk around all day. First, you're keenly aware of the extra weight, but after a while, you forget that you're even wearing them, even though it's slowing you down and it's holding you back. You just kind of deal with it. And the reality is there's a lot of guilt in this auditorium today. And I promise I haven't been reading your emails or text messages. I promise I'm not the NSA listening in on your phone conversations. I just know that to be true because we're all human and we've all done stuff that makes us feel guilty. 
As J.C. Ryle writes in his book on holiness, sin pervades and runs through every part of our moral constitution and every faculty of our minds. The understanding, the affections, the reasoning powers, the will are all more or less affected by sin. So no wonder we begin to cry out in our souls, Oh, wretched man that I am. And this brings us to the first point that I want us to take notice of this morning. What we often cry out is that phrase right there. What the Apostle Paul cried out in Romans 7, verse 24. Oh, wretched man that I am. You see, Romans 7 is one of the most powerful descriptions about struggling with sin in all of the Bible. And what makes it so powerful is that the Apostle Paul here is providing us kind of a, a glimpse into his own personal struggle with sin. Let's be honest, you can be a Christian. In fact, you can even be a good Christian. Maybe even a great Christian like the Apostle Paul. And at the same time, struggle a great deal in your walk with God. Paul's just being honest when he writes here in Romans 7 Verse 19, I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Paul's saying that even though he was an apostle, he felt this struggle within his heart, within his own desires, between his desire to please God and his desire to please his flesh. And that's why when Paul cries out, Oh, wretched man that I am, I don't know about you, but I can understand him. I completely understand him. Man, I get it. And perhaps you're sitting there and go, man, I get it too. I understand what Paul's saying. I identify with him because, listen, he's not just talking about himself. He's talking about me and he's talking about you. He's talking about all of us here this morning. He's talking about the struggle with ongoing sin. Notice this on the screen. Every Christ follower here today is in a struggle with ongoing sin, and we often fell. And we fell miserably. Haven't there been times when you wanted to give up certain sins only to find that you have committed those same sins again? I mean, how many times a week could you just kick yourself for failing? Every Christ follower understands the struggle with ongoing sin. Even in our best efforts, we are conscious of the power of sin. The things we do are not done with the best motives. Worse than that, there are times when we just, man, we just plunge headlong into sin because the power of temptation it just proves too great and our spiritual defense is too feeble and we give in to it. There's not a day, there's not an hour, there's not a minute that passes without sin manifesting its ugly head in our lives. I mean, even in the midst of a worship service like this, we find our minds wandering and our hearts engaged in something or someone else. We commit some of our most overt sins right here. Every Christ follower, every one of us here, we listen, we echo... Paul's words in 719. It could be our own words. I do not do the good I want. 
but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. See, in chapter 7 here of Romans, Paul describes the struggle with ongoing sin as kind of a master that too often exerts control over our thoughts and our actions. In fact, this control over us by the power of sin is literally referred to by Paul as the law of sin. In 7 verse 23. And it is called the law of sin and death in Romans 8 too. And this word law here, it's interesting. It's the idea of a, of a controlling authority. In fact, Paul admits that sin had such control over him, over his life, that he was a prisoner of the law of sin. In verse 23, he uses the phrase and he says, It's bringing me into captivity to the law of sin. So no wonder Paul here, the Apostle Paul, the great Apostle Paul, cries out in his own soul, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? This is what we all cry out in our struggle with ongoing sin. So what then can the gospel do for sinners like us? Fighting, but all too often failing. Paul's already began, or begun, to whisper the answer to our heart cry earlier in the book of Romans. Listen to what he says in Romans 5.20. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Romans 6.14. We are not under law, but under grace. And now at the beginning of Romans 8 here, Paul declares the heart of the gospel to us loud and clear. So what does the gospel have to say to us as we struggle with sin and fell and then fell again? Well, that brings us to point two here. What the gospel declares. Look at it. The gospel declares to us this. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, Stop right there. This is the best news in all the world. This is the best news imaginable. Let me read it again. Listen to it. Look at it. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Man, we ought to shout hallelujah for that one, right? Are you not excited about that? You should be excited. I hope you will leave here after we look at what this means, all the more excited about this glorious gospel that we have in Jesus Christ. This is not only the theme of all of Romans chapter 8, this is the heart of the gospel here. This is the message of Christianity. This is the message of God to the world. This is the message we proclaim to all peoples in our communities and beyond. This is the message we are taking to the world. This is the message we are funding for Mark for the Makande. It's the message of why we support our missionaries to take this message, this very message here, all around the world. This is the message that can change your life. Now before we move on, I need to point out something to us here in verse 1. What I would call a, a manuscript issue or problem. Those of you who use the King James Version or the New King James Version of the Bible will notice the addition of the phrase who walk not after the flesh, 
but after the Spirit following the words Christ Jesus in verse 1. While those of you who use the uh, versions such as English Standard Version or the New International Version or the New American Standard Bible, you'll notice that phrase is omitted. It's not there in your Bibles. So here we have some Bibles with that phrase and other Bibles that don't have that phrase. And the reason that phrase is omitted in some Bibles is because it's not found in the older and more reliable Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. Actually, this very phrase here that is in some of your Bibles here at the end of verse 1 is better found in verse 4, which is in everyone's Bible. And most Bible scholars agree that all that should be in verse 1, all verse 1 should say is, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, period. So that's what we're going to use as our text this morning. These two there are two phrases I want us to focus on. The first phrase is now no condemnation. The second phrase is in Jesus Christ. Two phrases we're going to focus on. Now, no condemnation. The other phrase, in Jesus Christ. The reason we're going to focus on those two phrases is because they are the heart of the gospel. These two phrases, listen, and it's the difference between life and death. Condemnation here is a, a forensic term or a legal term that's often used in a court of law. And it includes both the sentence and the execution of that sentence. And in the context of the book of Romans, that sentence here is eternal death. But Paul says, here in the beginning of Romans 8, there is now no condemnation to those who are what? Who are in Christ Jesus. Now, don't overlook the word now. Interesting word, significant word. The word now here signals a point in time. In other words, what Paul is telling us, this hasn't always been our status. This hasn't always been our standing before God Almighty. What standing? No condemnation. Oh, there was a point in time, in other words, when you and I, we stood condemned before a holy God. But not now, Paul says. Now there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So question, how then does the gospel declare that believers have moved from condemnation to no condemnation? Because that's what the gospel is telling us here. That there was a point in our life when we were in condemnation, we were under condemnation. That was our status. That was our position before a holy God. So how does the gospel now declare that we're moving? We've changed. We're now over here, and we're set free from condemnation. How is that possible? To find myself now in a state of no condemnation. Well, notice this. Then your note's coming up on the screen. Moving from condemnation to no condemnation. Look at it. Outside of Christ, we are found guilty of sin and live under condemnation. You see, because we are guilty of sin, 
God justly pronounces a death sentence upon us. Now, is that fair? Is God being fair with you and I to pronounce a death sentence on our life? To declare us guilty? To find us guilty? Is God being unfair somehow? No. Listen, our condemnation is just. You say, why is that? Well, according to 3.8, Romans 3.8, it's just. And then Paul goes on and tells us in Romans 3.10 and 23, there is none righteous, no, none, not one. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So we are guilty of sin, are we not? Paul's declaring to us, there isn't anybody righteous. Nobody is righteous. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God, of the holiness of God. So God is just and he is fair when he declares humanity, which means me personally, you personally, condemned. We're guilty as charged. Our guilt, though, is more than personal. We have inherited a sinful nature through our union or our identification with Adam. Remember Adam and Eve? Go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. and You know the story. Remember the story? Adam and Eve blew it. They sinned. They ate of the, of the, of the fruit that they shouldn't have eaten. And it, humanity fell. And now we have inherited that. Say, so what does this mean? Well, let me just read it to you. In Romans 5, verse 12, it says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and that one man is Adam, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. What this means is, as long as we remain, listen to me, as long as you and I, we remain in Adam, or I'll say it this way, outside of Christ, we stand before God guilty of sin and condemned to eternal death. In other words, think of it this way. We are on death row awaiting the execution of the guilty verdict that has already been passed on us. We are sinners by birth and by choice. And apart from the gospel, our guilt condemns us forever. But, oh, I love that word. But, listen, here's the gospel. This is the good news. But, in God's great love for us, he has removed us from our natural identification with Adam. He has canceled our guilt and joined us supernaturally to Jesus Christ so that we are now covered by his righteousness. This means we can now move from a state, a position of condemnation, to a state or position before a holy God of no condemnation. Why? Because we're no longer outside of Christ. We're no longer in Adam. Man, we are in Christ. It's a beautiful thing. Which brings us to the second point here of how we move. In Christ, we are declared righteous. You see, outside of Christ, we are found guilty of sin. But in Christ, we're declared righteous and set free from condemnation. Now, 
But given the pervasive sinfulness of our lives, how then can anyone ever be in a right relationship with such a holy God? More particularly, how is it possible for a holy God to justify wretched sinners like us? Well, that's the greatest question we could ever ask. That's the greatest question we could ever answer. And Paul gives us the answer in Romans 5, verse 18, where he says, Therefore, as one trespass, that is Adam's sin, led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. You say, well, whose act of righteousness leads to justification in life? Ours? Is it my act of righteousness that leads to my justification? Is it yours? No. Why? Because Paul's already told us there is none righteous, no, not one. It's only Jesus Christ's act of righteousness. And you say, what was that act of righteousness by Jesus Christ? Well, Paul tells us now in 2 Corinthians verses 5, verse 21, where he says, God made him, speaking of Jesus Christ, who had no sin, to be sin for us. Why? So that in him... In Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. Now, just stop here for a moment. And just let this glorious truth sink in. Let it grip your heart and your mind. At the cross, Jesus took all of our sins on himself as if they were his own. So that now God gives us the righteousness of Jesus as our own. In other words, Jesus exchanged places with you. He put us in his place of approval and he put himself in our place of condemnation. And you know what? God accepts that exchange. Your only part, my only part, now is to open our hearts to this glorious truth and receive it by faith, the finished work of Christ on the cross. And when you do, when you do receive it by faith, listen, God says, the gospel says, you are justified before God. And get this, you are not just kind of brought up from minus to zero. It's not that we start negative five and we're brought up to zero. To a position of neutrality in our lives. No, we are declared righteous in God's assessment of us. As righteous as Jesus himself. And that's why you are now set free from condemnation. Do you see how being, quote, in Christ makes all the difference in the world? Man, we're going to, I'm telling you, this phrase in Christ is huge. In the language for the Apostle Paul, it's everything. In Christ, outside of Christ, what are we? Listen, we're guilty and we're condemned. But in Christ, we are declared not guilty and we are justified. Outside of Christ, there is only death. But in Christ, there is life, eternal life and abundant life. Oh, how desperately we need to declare to ourselves what the gospel so clearly declares to us here. We need to preach this to us every day. 
This is the best news imaginable. Therefore, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Listen, this is the foundation of our relationship with God Almighty. And yet, it's at this point where we begin to so easily revert to a wrong way of thinking. Let me show you this. Look at it in your notes. The problem of wrong thinking here. We believe in Jesus Christ. We believe there's no condemnation when we're in Christ, but then we sin. We sin again. And we revert to a performance mentality for our acceptance by God. That is, we believe in Jesus Christ and there's no condemnation, but then we sin and again, sin again, and we begin to think to ourselves, man, I must be condemned again because I've now sinned again. So now, I, you know what, I think I just need to try a little harder. Otherwise, God won't accept me. So what do we do? We, we go to church, we sing more enthusiastically, we read our Bibles, we have nice thoughts about Jesus all hoping to kind of slip back into a state of no condemnation. But then tomorrow we sin again. And so we try a little harder to do more good things, love Jesus more, so we can, quote, get back into a state of no condemnation. And, and God will now accept me. And this cycle kind of repeats itself over and over with us. Man, that's a performance mentality. And this mentality hounds us, doesn't it? It dogs us in our walk with the Lord, in our Christian life. Listen, our assurance here of being in Christ under this mentality is utterly dependent on our continuing good performance. Based on this type of thinking, I look to Christ for my justification, but I look to myself for my continued acceptance before God. But the issue here is not, have I done enough good to outweigh my lack of performance? On that account, listen, you and I, we can never reach a state of assurance or acceptance by God because we can't do enough good things. Rather, the focus of our thinking must be on what the gospel declares to us to be true. And what does the gospel declare? What does it declare to you this morning loud and clear? Therefore, there is now no condemnation to those who are what? In Christ. Period. Focus on verse 1. Focus on this declaration of the gospel. Focus on this glorious truth. No condemnation means that if you are in Christ... You aren't condemned now, and you never will be condemned. Amen. Hallelujah. Yes, no condemnation means that God, He doesn't relate to you in light of your performance. How freeing is that? At the cross, Jesus dealt with our sins. All of our sins. Past, present, and future, once and for all. That means you don't slip back under condemnation when you sin. You remain in Christ. And because you remain in Christ, you know what? You are accepted by God the Father. Always. 
That's the good news of being in Christ. In fact, let me just show you what the difference makes. This makes a huge difference in our life. Look at this. The good news of being in Christ. First of all, God does not reject those who are in Christ when they sin. Aren't you thankful for that? You say, well, why? Why doesn't he do that? Because our acceptance by God is based, get this, on what Christ has already done for us, not on what you do or you don't do in life. You see, Satan wants you to believe a lie. And unfortunately, so many Christians believe this lie. That God rejects you when you sin. And that you are once again guilty and you are condemned. But the truth of the gospel for those who are in Christ is that when you struggle with sin, God isn't mad at you. He's not angry with you. He's not going to give up on you. He'll never reject you or condemn you. Never. All you have to do is go to an illustration, a parable that Jesus told with the prodigal son. Remember the story of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15? Man, he went his wayward life, and then he came to his senses. He came back to his father. And did the father reject the son for coming back? No, man. He waited for him with open arms. He took him in, and he loved him and threw him a party. God doesn't reject you when you sin. Is he disappointed? Does, in a sense, does he, does he want us to, to, to please him? Oh, yeah, we'll get to that part of life. Don't worry, Paul gets to it. Two, look at this. God does not punish those who are in Christ when they sin. He doesn't punish you. Oh, there's discipline. There's correction, which may be very painful, but there's no harsh abuse of punishment when we sin. Even when God must discipline us, he does it for our own good. It's for our ultimate benefit. Now, I'll be honest with you. I think it's hard for some of us right now to really believe that God loves us. Especially in the morning when we look in the mirror after struggling with sin and failing again the day before. We, we, we know God loves us in our, our head, but we struggle with it in our hearts. We have moments when we look at ourselves and we say to ourselves, maybe not verbally, but we thank it to ourselves, oh, wretched man that I am, there's plenty of condemnation for me. But that's not what God says here. The gospel is declaring loud and clear, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. But the tragic reality is this. Listen to me. This morning, the tragic reality is not everyone can say there is now, therefore, no condemnation over my life. Why? Because only those who are in Christ can say there is now no condemnation. So I'm going to throw out to you the most important question you can ever answer. Where are you in life? Where are you? Are you outside of Christ or are you in Christ? 
And if you want to be able to say now, today, and at the last judgment, there is now no condemnation for me because Jesus Christ endured it for me, then you must be in Christ. Think of it. In Christ. Little phrase. In Christ. Could there be a more simpler way to describe our relationship with the Lord than with the word in? But the meaning is profound. And it makes all the difference in the world. John Calvin wrote, We must understand that as long as Christ remains outside of us and we are separated from Him, all that He has suffered and done for the salvation of the human race remains useless and of no value for us. In other words, what he is saying is this, what Christ did on the cross for us must be internalized by faith. We must place our trust in Christ and in what He accomplished on the cross for us. You say, well, what if I don't believe it? What if I don't internalize it? What if I don't accept this? What if I remain outside of Christ? What happens then? Look what Jesus says in John chapter 3, verse 18. He says, He who believes in Him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of of the only begotten Son of God. And then Jesus continues in verse 36, He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Now, did you catch that last phrase? The wrath of God abides on him. Why? Because the condemnation of God is only taken away for those who are in Christ, not outside of Christ. So I ask again, where are you? Are you in Christ this morning? Or are you outside of Christ? Are you free from condemnation or are you under condemnation? And the beauty of the gospel is you don't have to stay under condemnation. There is room in Christ. In fact, there is always room in Christ. There's enough room for the whole world to be in Christ. And Christ's word to every person here this morning is come. Come to me. Trust me. Enter and I will be your righteousness. I will be your condemnation. And if you are in Christ, man, here's the beauty of this. Look at this in your notes. You can write your name in Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for Bill Bowman. There's now no condemnation for Sally Dixon. And you can just put your name right there for those who are in Christ Jesus. For everyone who is in Christ, there is no condemnation. What a glorious truth this is. Man, what a glorious gospel we've been given. So how should we respond to such a glorious gospel? Man, our response is this. Our hearts should be filled with grateful worship towards God for finding a way to justify sinners like us through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, perhaps you've never thought of yourself in this way, but every one of us here could honestly claim the title, Worst Sinners. Right? Every one of us could stand up here and say, the title for my life is Worst 
sinner. This title isn't reserved for the Adolf Hitlers, Osama bin Ladens of the world, or those who do mass killings at schools. As William Law writes, we may justly condemn ourselves as the greatest sinners we know because we know more of the follow of our own heart than we do of other people. So admit it right here and now. You're the worst sinner you know. Admit it that you're unworthy and deserve to be condemned of your sin. But don't stop there. Move on to rejoicing in the Savior who came to redeem the worst of sinners. Lay down that baggage of condemnation and kneel in worship of the one who died in your place on the cross. And then cry out with Paul in Romans 7, verse 25, where he comes to the end of his struggle with sin. He basically says, I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Why? Because he's been redeemed. And I want to close with a video that shows this very thing. That is so cool. That's what the gospel can do for you. Redeemed. No condemnation. Is that you? Can you claim that for yourself? Have you been redeemed? Are you in Christ? If not, then come to Jesus. Run to him as fast as you can and cry out to him. Repent of your sin. And ask Him to forgive you of your sin. And receive Him by faith. And believe on what He accomplished for you on the cross with His death. And His death paid the penalty for your sin. He took your condemnation so that you could be set free. So that you could be redeemed. What a glorious gospel. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you and we thank you for the work that you've done on the cross. For, Lord, there is nothing in us that could change our status of no condemnation, from condemnation to no condemnation. It's all because of you intervening. It's all because of you opening up our eyes and granting us the faith to believe in you. And, Lord, I pray that you would do that for some that are here right now. For those who are still living under condemnation of their sin. Lord, I pray that you would move and by your spirit, you would open up their heart to confess you as their Lord and Savior. And they would repent of their sin and cry out for help and for salvation in you. Lord, right where they're sitting, I pray you would give them the words to just pray. Whatever's in their heart, whatever you're working to do, it would come out in faith in you. As the praise team sings, they're going to sing one chorus, and if you... If God is working in your move, let me encourage you to pray, to confess Christ as your Lord and Savior, and to repent of your sin, and to allow Jesus to take your condemnation and to set you free, and by faith to be in Christ Jesus.